It's nice to hear Yusuf Islam in church, isn't it? Yusuf Islam's got this song, The Wind, where he sings, I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul, where I'll end up, only God really knows. I've sat upon the setting sun, but I never wanted water once. I listen to the words of my soul, but they far, fall far below. I'll let the music take me where my heart wants to go. Then he says, I swam upon the devil's lake, but I'll never make the same mistake. No, never, never, never. We are a people on a journey of faith propelled by the wind of the spirit and our souls. Where we'll end up, only God really knows. And music can take us where our heart wants to go, but I cannot get down with the last line of this song. While beautifully poetic, Yusuf Islam's words contain a kind of aspirational thinking that is out of touch with reality. We are human beings, and I just don't believe we'll never make the same mistakes twice. It's become cliche now to say that to err is human, we all make mistakes or all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that obvious by now? The evidence is widely available to us by every source in our lives. The nightly news, the morning paper, social media, the movies and television shows that we love, the quagmire in Afghanistan, the devastation in Haiti, the fumbling of COVID-19, the denial of climate change, the long and brutal legacy of systemic racism, and so much more reveal to us the tragic impact our mistakes can have. However, the problem is not simply that we make mistakes. The problem is also that we live in a cruel and graceless world, a world of immediate consequences and dramatic implications, a world without mercy, a world without safety net support systems or second chances. On a personal level, we all know too well how a single mistake can cost us our job, our career, our friends, our fortune, our freedom, our family, even our lives. Living in a graceless world is fear-inducing. It often drives us to take one of three paths. We try to hide our mistakes by becoming perfectionists. We try to deny our mistakes by becoming prideful. Or we try to judge our mistakes by trapping ourselves in a cycle of endless shame. And this three-headed monster of avoidance, denial, and judgment bears down on us every time that we make a mistake. And the monster gets bigger and hungrier with every person in our lives who decides to weigh in on our failures. Because most of us are harder on ourselves than anyone else will ever be. How are we supposed to live in a graceless world as imperfect human beings? Well, we turn to Jesus, don't we? We turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? We, we may be flawed and finite human beings, but at least we follow a flawless Savior. We may be sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God, but at least we worship a sinless Messiah. We may be imperfect people, but at least we serve a perfect Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, drenched in divinity. He was perfect so that we don't have to be, right? Well, then why did he call the Syrophoenician woman a dog if he was so perfect? 
Last week, I heard a preacher say that all the women in the Bible should have names. Mia, was that you? I'd love to give the Syrophoenician woman a name, but somebody beat me to the punch. A third century preacher, Pseudo-Clementine, called her Eusta and her daughter, Berenice. Who was Eusta? What is her story? We only encounter her because Jesus traveled into a foreign territory, across the border, to the urban center of Tyre, which was an ancient Phoenician city and a well-known commercial center with significant trade routes along the Mediterranean Sea. The people of Tyre were known for being dye workers who used the shells of the murex fish to create purple, a rare color which was highly valued for its royal connotations in the ancient world. This is how they became known by the Greeks as the Phoenicians in the first place, which means purple people. They were conquered by the Babylonians, later by Alexander the Great, and yet in Jesus' day, Tyre remained a rich and prosperous city whose wealth was dependent upon the agricultural production of outlying areas, including Jesus' hometown in Galilee. Now, Tyre was 63 miles from Galilee, which would have taken three days to travel there by foot. Mark tells us that Jesus rented a room there and did not want anyone to know that he was there. You may remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been trying to get away from the crowds for rest and rejuvenation, but kept getting interrupted. And so to solve that problem, he left town and went out into Gentile territory for a vacation. But word traveled fast. And Jesus could not escape being noticed by people in desperate need. And immediately upon encountering Eusta, this woman, we, we learn four things about her. She is a Greek, a Syrophoenician woman, the mother of a child possessed by unclean spirits. Mark provides us with her religion, her nationality, her gender, and her family situation back to back to back. In, in every case, we learn that Eusta is the opposite of Jesus. Remember Jesus, a Galilean Jewish man who had no wife or children. And by listing this quadruple contrast, it's as if Mark wanted us to tally up all the ways that Eusta and Jesus were different in order to set up a dramatic scene for their dialogue, for their encounter. And in this case, Jesus is the one who's the outsider. But like Jairus, the leader of the synagogue before her, used to bow down at Jesus' feet to offer a sign of honor and respect and begged him to help her daughter. But Jesus said, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. By children, Jesus meant the people of Israel, of course, which means that he was telling Eusta that he came only for his own people and not for her or any of the other Phoenician dogs that might be in Tyre at the time. I know no one likes to be bothered on vacation, but this, this was way out of line. As Hebrew scriptures and early Christian writings reveal, calling someone a dog was a supreme insult. Dogs were considered vicious, nasty, and unclean, which is why this epithet is no less offensive today. Jesus did not exhaust all possibilities in this text. His response was a first century example of bigotry, ethnocentrism, and misogyny. Not to mention the fact that he spouted off, did you catch it, the myth of scarcity by claiming that there was not enough to go around. Now, theologians over the years have tried to justify Jesus' behavior. Generations of scholars have tried 
But is there any defense for calling someone a dog? One scholar said Jesus was just engaging in playful banter. But Eustace's situation was too serious for that. Another scholar claimed the Greek here means little dog, like a pet, which is less offensive. Try calling a woman a little dog on the way out of church today. See how offensive it is. Some contend that Eusta was one of the urban elites in Tyre whose life presumed the exploitation of Jewish peasants in Galilee, and so Jesus was justified in calling her a dog for her role in the economic exploitation of his people. But even castigating the rich is no excuse for insulting Eusta and dismissing her daughter. There's no way around it here. Jesus totally blew it. Truth be told, Jesus made a massive mistake. And on the one hand, this fact could bring our faith and our theology and our Christology and all our notions of divinity crashing down to the ground in a heaping pile of rubbish if we let it. Or it could break open the possibility of a more expansive understanding of the incarnation and Jesus' humanity. One that provides a kind of wild grace to us, that liberates us to live boldly for the sake of a new and better world. Why do we associate divinity with changelessness and perfection instead of evolution and adaptation, which is the rhythm of the universe? Jesus had to learn how to speak and eat and walk and read and study and love his neighbor and work. And So why is it so hard for us to imagine that he had also to learn how to be inclusive of other genders and religions or ethnicities and live into God's abundance? Is that so hard to believe? Why don't we think that continual development is divine? Where's the grace in immutability? Where's the grace in perfection? Didn't Octavia Butler say, the only lasting truth is change. God is change. If Jesus was perfect and sinless and never make mistakes, then his followers, we must try to be perfect and sinless and never make mistakes. But if Jesus was imperfect and made mistakes, then we can make mistakes. If Jesus was wrong, then we can be wrong. If Jesus was imperfect, we can be imperfect. If Jesus can say and do something terrible and still be Jesus, that means that we are not the worst thing that we've ever said or done. We are more than our worst mistakes. Our failures do not ultimately define us. If the greatest mistake Jesus ever made did not define him, then neither do ours. And if Jesus can evolve and change and grow, then so can we. There's so much grace in that. There's a heart full of hope in that. It means, as Mary Oliver wrote, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. In his book, Shaking the Foundations, theologian Paul Tillich wrote, Do you know what it means to be struck by grace? 
It does not mean we suddenly believe God exists or Jesus is the Savior or the Bible contains all truth. Grace strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel our separation from God is deeper than usual because we've violated another person. It strikes us when our disgust of our own being, our indifference, our hostility, our weakness, our lack of direction have become intolerable. It strikes us when the long, longed-for perfection of our lives does not appear when we want it, when our old compulsions reign in us the way they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes, he says, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice is saying, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you. Do not seek anything, do not perform anything, do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Despite all our faults and imperfections, the most profound ontological claim that I can make to you today is that you are and will always be a beloved child of God. I want you to take a minute to soak in that grace. Feel it deep in your bones. I know many are struggling to believe in grace these days, to feel grace in their lives. Even if no one in your life has ever offered you grace, it still exists. Ready for you to receive it by accepting the fact that you are accepted. We human beings, we are prone to resist grace, are we not? Not because we enjoy shaming ourselves. We resist grace because as good as it is, as holy as it is, grace is also terrifying. Flannery O'Connor said, All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. Grace is an awesome and liberating force that creates the space and the freedom for us to become our best and highest selves. And Lamont said, I don't understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. Lately, I've been talking a lot with Mahan Seiler. Some of you know Mahan, former pastor of Pullen Memorial in Raleigh wise elder and mentor who come to our church a few times. He and I have been talking together and working to lead people in the deep soul work of confronting our inner demons of patriarchy, homophobia, racism, xenophobia, bigotry, all the isms, the challenge, all the ideologies that are waging war for all of our hearts and the soul of our nations. But Mahan always says the same thing to me every time we talk. Ben, this work is really, really hard. And I can't do it unless I begin with grace. If I don't start with grace, I don't have the strength to keep going. I don't have the strength to look at myself honestly and truthfully. If I don't start with grace, I can't do the work. I can't change. Thomas Merton said, once you have grace, you're free. But so much of us squander that freedom. The good news in this story is that Jesus did not squander his freedom. 
Otherwise, there would be no Gentile inclusion, no church, no Christianity for us to be a part of. We have Eusta to thank for our salvation. She turned the tables on Jesus and bested him at his own game. In the Gospels, you know, Jesus is the one who always gets the punchline at the end of every story. But not in this story, no. Eusta is the one who gets the punchline. She took Jesus' bigotry and misogyny and ethnocentrism and scarcity and flipped it on its head saying, Sir, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. There is enough, Jesus. It was a scandalous thing to approach Jesus alone as a woman or to talk to Jesus at all. But for a foreign woman to best a Jewish prophet at his own game and teach him a lesson was unheard of. It was a revelatory rebuke that caused Jesus to reconsider his own mission. And I've been thinking about this. There are a lot of Jesuses in America today that are worse than the Jesus in this story. But Eusta shows us that whenever we are confronted by a bigoted and misogynistic and ethnocentric Jesus, we have permission to rebuke him and turn the tables on him and remind him of who he is and what his true mission in the world is. Eusta helped us to remember what Jesus had just done. She helped Jesus to remember that he had just rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for the same thing he was doing, excluding people based on absurd purity laws. And so by challenging Jesus, Eusta gave him the opportunity to begin to practice what he was preaching by adopting a wider circle of inclusivity. She not only turned the tables on Jesus, but turned his entire ministry in a new direction. Her rebuke in this story was the crucial turning point in Jesus' life that compelled him to expand his ministry beyond the people of Israel, out to the Gentiles. Immediately after this story, you may notice in Mark, something changes. Jesus goes out and heals another Gentile. Then he feeds 4,000 Gentiles in the desert. This encounter with Eusta changed Jesus' life and mission forever. From here on out, his ministry would go beyond Jeru Jerusalem, beyond Judea, out to the entire world. Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza says that Eusta is the apostolic foremother of all Gentile Christians. She claims that this story is a visible manifestation of the way that women contributed to the most crucial transition in the early church. And it is a call to revision the Christian faith as a combative, argumentative, and liberatory practice that constantly provokes all of us to seek the well-being and inclusion of all people, to continually widen the circle. Jesus made a horrible mistake in this story, but he learned from it immediately. Yes, there was grace, but he also owned his mistake. He acknowledged he was wrong and that Eusta was right. He was not canceled, he was made accountable. Accountability helped him change course to practice what he was preaching, to go and repent and go off in a different direction, expand the circle of his life and ministry. Grace is not an excuse for us to feel good and do nothing or to imagine that we are once saved, always saved, once good, always good, once woke, always woke. The world is always changing. Evil is always evolving. The circle 
is a need of constantly growing wider. And we must continue learning and changing and growing too. Or those of us who were once on the side of love and goodness and justice and life and peace will find ourselves on the other side as the world shifts under our feet. In his letter to the Romans, Paul famously said, should we continue in sin in order to get that grace may abound? Hell no, basically is my translation. Hell no. Grace is no excuse to keep on sinning, Paul said. Grace gives us the power and the freedom to become our best and highest selves. Therefore, grace should be propelling us to be bolder than we ever have been, to take bigger risks than we can imagine, to engage in greater acts of justice and liberation because we know that we can fail and it will not be the end of the world. Augustine said, grace is not given to us because we've done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. Grace is a force, liberates us and empowers us to cross the boundaries of this world in the pursuit of love and life and justice and peace. If grace doesn't liberate and empower us for justice, it's not real grace. It's the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer warned us about so long ago. Forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without contrition, grace without discipleship, without a cross, without Jesus at all. Yeah, we live in a graceless world, do we not? But we are beloved children of God with the grace to make mistakes and the freedom to change. And grace is constantly turning the tables on all of us, beckoning us to make the circle wider, to expand our mission beyond our wildest imaginations. The question is, do we have the courage to accept the fact that we are already accepted? and receive God's terrifying and yet transforming grace. And what will we do with all the grace that God has given? Will we squander our freedom or will we be liberated by that grace and set off on a wild and audacious mission to bring love and liberation and justice to our world? This graceless world is in desperate need of graceful people. People filled with so much grace that they're courageous, and unflinchingly free to face the world's most urgent challenges without fear of failure. In the words of the poet Hafiz, now is the time for you to deeply compute the impossibility that there is anything but grace. Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you finally live with veracity and love. Now is the season for you to know that everything you do is sacred. We are people on a journey of faith, propelled by the wind of the Holy Spirit and our souls. Where we'll end up, only God really knows. Like Jesus, we are human. We will make mistakes we will often make the same mistakes twice. But if we truly believe in grace, then we can do what others claim cannot be done and fearlessly attempt to change the world. Amen.